Good morning, everyone. It is so good to see you. One more week of registration for those of us that got our two Fauci ouchies. No more masks. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 17 is where we're going to be today. Uh, I do want to welcome those of you, like Lorenzo did, that are joining us, that you are maybe, this is your first Sunday, or you are in some way new to Collective, checking things out. Um, Welcome. We are so excited, especially as we're coming out of kind of the year that shall not be named, uh, that we're moving back into what it means to be a church, and uh, that so many of you are coming out of the past year looking for that and looking for a new community, a new place to kind of place yourself. We're so excited that you would uh, investigate and check out Collective as a part of that. Well, like I said a moment ago, today we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 17. If you want to turn or tap your way there, we also have uh, it behind me on the slides here in just a moment. Well, we are six weeks into this letter, Paul's letter to the Ephesian church, in this series that we've been calling Collective Again. After that past year, a year of digital services, of disembodied church, we're taking kind of this period, this time of looking at Ephesians as a refresher, as a recall back to what sort of a community do we want to be? And not just do we want to be, but based off of the scriptures, based off the history of the Christian church, what kind of a community church are we called to be? Are we meant to be? Specifically, as a local expression on the west side of LA, what does that mean? And who are we going to be? And so over the past Um, Well, let's see, it was uh, five weeks before Pastor Lorenzo last week. We had three chapters where the Apostle Paul was laying out in in this huge visionary language of what the church is. In chapter one, talking about the church as the blessed, you know, um, chosen people of God. And chapter two, that the church is those who have gone from death to life, from being dominated by the powers and the desires and even uh, the ways of this world to now reigning alongside Jesus. All of this captivating big language that at times kind of boggled our minds. The back half of chapter 2, talking about the humanity that was formerly divided, specifically around these ethnic lines being unified through the work of Jesus and becoming, in Paul's language, the new humanity. When you think about the church, what is the language, the images, the pictures that come to mind? For most of us, maybe it's, you know, here's a church, here's the steeple, For Paul, at the end of chapter 2, when he kind of comes to the big highlight moment of what he thinks the church community is, he uses the language of new humanity, humanity 2.0. This is what the church is meant to be. This is what each local church is meant to be, a, a sort of embassy of the new humanity out into their local cities through the empowering work of Jesus through his spirit. This was the first three chapters. But last week with Pastor Lorenzo, uh, we looked at how the Apostle Paul made this this big shift in his writings where he opened up chapter 4, verse 1 with, you'll just see it right behind me here. Paul writes, I therefore urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. After three chapters of the big vision of the new humanity, the church is the blessed and chosen people of God, chapter 4, verse 1. Okay now, church. I urge you to walk in a manner that is worthy of that new humanity calling. That is, that is up to par with what this calling has been. Everything that the first three chapters talked about, Paul says, walk, live in a manner worthy of that sort of identity and status. 
And so with Pastor Lorenzo, those first 16 verses of chapter 4, we looked at this new humanity walk, these uh, interrelated ideas that Paul links together of our unity and our maturity and that they cannot be separated from one another. Our connectedness, that collectivism that we share as a, as a local church body, and our maturity, our growth in the way of Jesus, those two things cannot be separated. They exist as one. This new humanity calling of maturity and unity. And so with all that set up, as we pick up here in verse 17 today, Paul is going to answer now for us, how do we walk in that unity and maturity that's worthy of the new humanity calling? How do I actually live out? Yeah, Paul, that's great. New humanity, right? Reigning, resurrecting, all this grandiose vision that you have for what it means to be the people of God. Okay, practically, what does that mean? That's exactly where we are today. So that being said, let's look at Ephesians 4, beginning in verse 17. I'm going to read this for us, pray for our time together, and then we'll begin to unpack it. For those of you that are new, this is my, my little uh, addendum each week. Uh, as we read through Ephesians, Paul uses in, in what we'll be reading the word you a lot. I'm reading that as y'all. This is because uh, English, we don't have what's called the second person plural pronoun. Which, what that means is Paul's not saying you singular. The Ephesians wasn't written to individuals. It was written to a community. So it's y'all or use guys or all y'all. So we'll just keep it with y'all. So Ephesians 4, you can follow with me on the slides or with your Bibles there in your laps. Paul writes, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. Yes, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them due to their hardness of hearts. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But, but that's not the way that you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful or deceived desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And to put on the new self, created in the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. It's Twitter along with all malice. <laughs> Be kind to one another. That's Ryan's uh, interjection. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, in all of this, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for another week here in the letter of Ephesians uh, where we continue just to reflect on uh, what we believe is not just this ancient letter written from one Christian to a community of churches, but by your spirit still invokes and calls us into what it means to be your people. 
And so we pray that now as we look to this letter that you would help us once again to, to see what it means to be collective again, what it means to be a church, and specifically in this uh, paradigm that Paul sets before us today of a, a community that's transforming. Help us, we pray. Amen. Well, at a 30,000-foot view, just looking over what this text and what Paul is doing at this point in the letter, the big picture, Paul just moved from last week, chapter 4, verse 1, saying, I urge you to walk, to live in a manner worthy of your calling, that new humanity calling. And now he moves into what does it mean to walk in a worthy of that calling? And we could summarize it as saying, it's walking in collective transformation. Collective transformation. Transformation from the old walk, which he described in verses 17 through 21 of chapter 4, to then in the beginning of chapter 5, the new walk that we now walk in, with right in the middle, in between it all, how? Old walk to new walk and the transformation paradigm, how? Right in the middle. So let's return back to 417 as Paul describes for us this starting point of our transformation, where we began our old walk. Back in verse 17, Paul opened, if you look back with your Bibles, that Paul says this, you know, I say this, I testify in the Lord, him driving the importance of this home, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Do you notice the walk language that we've been, I've been talking about? Hopefully that, that you caught this as we were reading through. 4 verse 1, he says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. 4.17, he says, what that means, you don't walk as the Gentiles do. Do you see how Paul's just continuing his line of thought here? Yes. Specifically, he says the way that we walk worthy is by not walking as the Gentiles do. So we'll get into the nature of the Gentiles in a moment, but let's just look into, keep reading of how they walk. Paul describes them as walking with futility, walking in this, this darkened state, alienated, ignorance, hardness. He uses all of these varying labels and ways of defining that old walk, the walk of the Gentiles, as he calls it, the way that Christians are not to walk in. That language of futility pointing to a, a walk or a life that is lived in purposelessness, a darkness that's walked with a sense of aimlessness, alienated, that feeling and sensation of godlessness, loneliness when it comes to our reaching out and connecting with our creator. Ignorance going to mindlessness, hardness, just that, that changelessness, that, that locked into a certain way of being. Paul says there is a walk that defines the world, and it is motivated, it is defined by these, these things. There is a walk, a way of living that's without purpose, a way of living that's without aim and just kind of aimlessly wandering through our lives. And in the midst of that, feels disconnected and alienated from God and, 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 and ignorant in the sense of not having the information necessary or the, the paradigm, the perspective of how to actually get out of this mess. And all of that leads to this hardness of heart, he says, this kind of just locked in the step, the walk that I'm in. In verse 19, he then continues that this walk takes people somewhere. It leads to them becoming, in his language, callous. That idea of if you've ever had a wound or you know, a burn or something, that over time it loses feeling. He uses that language of hardening. And specifically that hardening of heart, that callousness that results, in, and then he defines as sensuality and greed to practice every sort of impurity. Now, this is heavy language. For those of you that have been with us through this series, this might be, you know, a little bit of deja vu, that Paul's just developing what he said it back in chapter 2, if you remember that. Paul talking about us being dead in our trespasses and sins, us being alienated from God, us being separated from him, you know, destined for death. All of that dynamic, Paul's just now detailing and talking about a little bit more. 
One thing that's worth noting is is Paul's situating kind of that big picture from chapter 2, now here in chapter uh, 4 in the Gentile context, is Paul's not saying this. That we read this and we're like, oh, so Paul is like, you know, he thinks humanity is, you know, in some sense, yes, going to hell in a handbasket. But but we read this and we go, oh, Paul thinks that every human being is as bad as they can be all the time. But Paul really intentionally doesn't necessarily say that. What he does is he identifies a trajectory that all humans are on. So Paul's not saying every human is as bad as they possibly can be. What Paul is saying is there is a trajectory within humanity that leads towards a becoming, a hardening, a a movement in a direction that may not necessarily be the direction they were made for. We see this within our world. For all of our beauty, for all of the progress that humans make, there is a a, a seeming trajectory bound within our society, based within our own hearts on an individual level, that moves us larger and more and more into that callousness, that darkness, that alienation, that sense of futility and vanity in our lives. Maybe this is why you're here with us today. You've, you've started checking out the Jesus, the church thing, because you've, you've, you've got to some point in your life where the futility, the, the vanity, the darkness, the alienation, you're just, I, I, this has been this, thing over me, and I am looking for some answer to that. Paul, if you jump down a little bit further into verse 22, he details where this is all coming from. He says all of this comes from the fact that, that our, our human desires have been deceived, that this corruption that we're experiencing, the old walk, the corrupt way of this old walk comes out of these deceitful desires that we as humans keep getting duped, we keep getting deceived. By the thing that we desire that may in all well purposes be a very good thing, that how we get to it gets deceived, and it ends up leading us back into this process. Now, with all this heaviness, I I, I want those of you here that identify as a Christian to hear something. Paul's not doing this work right now describing the Gentiles so that the church in Ephesus can now look down their noses at them or in pride or like lock their doors at night in fear. Verse 20, the whole point, watch where he goes, of detailing all of this is to say, that's not how you're supposed to be. It's actually about humble comparison for yourself. Not about you looking out at your neighbors. Like that, that almost seems to be self-explanatory, what's going on out there. He details and explains what Paul sees going on out there so the church has a, a more readily available mirror to look at themselves. Look at verse 20, where Paul says what? But that is not the way that you learned Christ. What's not the way you learn? The way that he just talked about, the way of the Gentiles, the walk of the world. Paul says, that's not the way you learn Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and you were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Now don't miss, Paul gets a little passive aggressive here. Did you catch this? It's so good. Like the, the tone that you can read into this is Paul's like, you know, you got the way of the Gentiles. He goes, that's not the way that you learned Christ. And he goes, assuming you did hear, assuming you did in fact hear, about Jesus, the whole, right, the whole reason you guys call yourself Christians, the whole G, assuming you guys heard that, you guys should know that's not the way that you learned Christ. There's no assumption for Paul. If you remember back to the first week, who planted the church in Ephesus? Who was the main guy preaching the gospel? All the people in the church, how did they become Christians? Paul, the guy writing the letter, he goes, uh, there's no assumption here. I know you heard this from me. Your sort of walk, the walk of the people of Jesus is meant to be something from the walk of the rest of the world. More than likely, the reason for the passive-aggressive here, and, and Paul is, is dealing with a, a problem within the church in Ephesus. 
Likely as a, as a pastor, we know from the past couple of weeks that he's in jail when this was written, in prison. And so he's hearing these reports of how the Ephesus church is doing. And in all likelihood, he's probably received a, a report that many in the Ephesian church are largely indistinguishable from the rest of the city. Assuming you did, in fact, hear when I told you what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Though the church was predominantly Gentile or non-Jewish, Paul is saying your sort of walk is no longer that way. If we were receiving it today, though it's not as ethnic, but, but I think it still works, is, is if we heard a letter from Paul and he said, you know, now I say, testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Angelinos do. It's like, well, that's me. <laughs> yes, but there's something more true of you now. Go back to verse chapters one and three, one through three. That new humanity thing now dictates that the way that you live your life is fundamentally different than the rest of your city. You do not walk as Angelinos do. You do not walk as the Gentiles do. And so the question for us in these first couple of verses here is, if we were to receive a report, or if, excuse me, if Paul were to receive a report about collective church, or maybe you want to get really uncomfortable, just you. <laughs> maybe somebody wrote a letter to Paul just about you. What would Paul hear? Is the walk and the way of your life distinct from the rest of our city? Is it largely indistinguishable apart from your calendar, like what you do on Sundays? Maybe your book list? Not just in your doctrine or what you believe, not just in how you spend your Sunday mornings. Paul says your walk, a metaphor for the way that you live your life. What distinguishes? What's distinct about you? Do you tend to walk like the Gentiles, like the Angelinos, like the rest of the world in this futility, a sense of lack of calling on your life? an aimlessness, a a sense of darkness that you're walking through, a lostness, a alienated, being disconnected from God, an ignorance of just being uninformed about what it means to be the new humanity or this hardness of heart. Do you have a resistance to change? Paul says that doesn't define people in the way of Jesus. That defines the rest of the city. The question to ask yourself that I had no fun doing this for myself this past week. What separates me from my neighbors? Not simply in the books that I read, the things that I believe, but in how I live my life. A church that, or or individual Christians who largely conform to the way and the walk of their city are are not walking, Paul says, in a manner worthy of that new humanity calling. Similarly, they are even more than that powerless to proclaim the gospel of Jesus and the new humanity work that God's doing. Because to put it bluntly, they're not smoking what they're selling. There, there was this whole movement back, I mean, like, you know, hi, you know, those of us that grew up in the 90s and we remember, like, you know, youth groups and all that. There's this huge emphasis on, like, you know, making church relevant and making, like, the gospel relevant and, like, we're just like everybody else, you know. We're, like, playing chubby bunny just like you do all the time, you know. <laughs> or we have, like, lock, you know, the, the church is, like, uh, so many of us grew up in a in a a, a sort of church culture, for those of you that grew up in the youth group, hi, how are you? Welcome. That normalized and tried to, to, for the sake of, you know, winning souls or whatever, robbed the Christian calling of all of its distinguishing markers other than, like, don't have sex outside of marriage. And, and the whole point is, no wonder we had a generation within our lives and within our churches that has been powerless to proclaim the gospel. You spend your money like I do. You talk like I do. You watch what I watch. You listen to what you you operate within consumerism. You get into the same political you know 
factionalism. What's, you're no different than me. So you're not smoking what you're selling. A church that looks like its city is powerless to proclaim the gospel to its city. Paul says the way of Christ, this new humanity calling, is intrinsically different than the walk of this city. So then how do we walk? Here we go. This is where we're going to get really practical. This is the fun stuff. Where Paul, in verses 22 through 24, sets forward his paradigm for collective transformation. So you're sitting in your seats. You're with me. You're going, oh my gosh, yes, I see it. There's far more connecting me to, like, to my city and, and the lack of distinctiveness. But I, and so I wanted, what do we do, Paul, right? He's got you on the edge of your seat. Paul, in verses 22 through 24, gives us a three-part paradigm for Christian transformation, for our collective transformation. And this three-part paradigm, what he does is, um, Paul does this in almost all of his letters. Once you find it and you see it, you, you keep finding it when you read through Paul's letters. He gives it to almost every church he writes to. You find it in Romans chapter 12, Colossians chapter 3, here in Ephesians chapter 4. What is it? Three parts. Here we go, Kyle. You ready for it? We got the slides. Is it, there it is. All right, so the first one. Look with me in verse 22. Paul says, to put off y'all's old self. Now you'll see I have um, put off uh, old, not self, but humanity. Um, little Bible, you guys are going to give me a little geek out moment, and then we're going to keep going, okay? Um, in, in the English translation we're reading from, was Paul originally wrote in Greek. When he said old, what we translate as self, the word in Greek there is the word anthropos. Now, you don't need to remember that, but uh, if I say anthropos, maybe, does anybody think of anthropology? You've ever heard of that, right? Study of humanity. The most explicit translation of old self would be to put off the old humanity, now, first of all, notice a couple of things. One, this connects us to Paul's new humanity stuff in chapter two, right? And also, how much more collective is this than that individual like put off, oh, my old self, yeah, so I'm gonna go on like a silent retreat away from all the people that annoy me and that's where I'm gonna be put on my new self. Paul says, no, 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 Collect, it's a collective identity. I want y'all, plural, to put off y'all's old humanity, that old way of living. And so I would recommend we translate that as old humanity, but I'm not on a Bible translation committee, so I'm here with you guys instead. So Paul first says, one, to put off y'all's old humanity. Put off, this is a way of him summarizing your former way of life, he says, the way of the Gentiles, your old walk. Put off that old humanity. The way that, because um, I, I preach for a living, and so I do everything with alliteration. So the first, the first one, the first thing that Paul says is identify. That church communities are to identify those practices, habits, and patterns of life in their city that are characteristic of the old humanity. Identify those things. Put those things off, he says. So the futility, the darkness, the ignorance, the callousness, the alienated from God, the sensuality, those deceived desires, the death, the being dominant, death, all of these things. Paul says, identify those things within yourself and within your city. And then take steps to rid them from your communities and from your own lives, to put them off. This is language of repentance, of turning the other way. What we you know, sometimes call repentance, Paul says, put off the old humanity. But it doesn't stop there. The Bible doesn't just stop at giving like moral thou shalt nots. Always leads to something greater, something better in its place. Uh, part two, Paul says in chapter, is it verse 22 or 23 he says this? Um, 22... Yes, 23. Okay, and to be renewed through, oh, yeah, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, he says. To be renewed in the spirit or 
by the Holy Spirit of y'all's minds. The second thing after identifying the old self is we renew our imagination. Not imagination in the sense of what's not real, but imagination in the sense of what's possible. To renew your mind, to to think and imagine, to conceive new ways to be a human being in light of the gospel, to allow the spirit-inspired scriptures, our new humanity identity to be the spirit's shaping tools of our collective imagination. So he says, first, put off the old self, identify those things. Then, in that space now, imagine a new way to be human. But don't miss in verse 23 that Paul says it's a team sport. Renew whose minds? Y'all's, plural. Collective transformation, this spirit brought about renewal is a team sport. We do this together. Paul does not have a category for solo renewal. Even more than that, what we translate uh, there as minds is actually singular. It's like Paul's got a weird like science fiction hive mind thing. He says, I want you to renew y'all's mind. Paul has some understanding that within communities, and specifically within the church, there is a mindset, there is a worldview, a collective imagination that we as a community share together about what it means to be human, about what it means to be the church. Paul says that needs to be renewed. Not just you on an individual level, but y'all's like, you know, weird, you know, hive mind thing. Y'all's, y'all's collective way of understanding what it means to be human, that needs to be renewed. Once again, it is a shared mind that needs to be renewed, not just your individual imaginations. And so before moving into the third phase, that this is where I think half of the trouble is for most of us. Most of us have some really good basis of trying to put off the old self, but then we get into like the imagine, the spirit brought about renewal, and we think that happens like solely through our personal walk with Jesus or through just like me sitting in and listening to sermons. We cut ourselves off from the rhythms and the relationships of the local church, and then we're surprised when we find ourselves feeling like our souls and our spirits are withering. We have a hard time moving past just, we feel like we kind of just get stuck in the repentance cycle, that that's largely where we live and operate. I kind of go into my week, I just like explode and like mess up everything, and then I come to church and I'm just like, God, help me, and then I go back right into the next, and it starts all over again. Paul's inviting us into a collective renewal that this is where the movement comes. This is where the transformation actually happens. And so for some of us that feel like we're stuck in a cul-de-sac of just, you know, trying to put off the old humanity and putting it back on every single day. Paul says, renew y'all's mind through the work of the Spirit. But we don't just simply renew our imaginations and we all just, you know, think different. This moves together into chapter, verse 24 where Paul says, then to put on the new self, the new humanity. At this point, we communally implement practices, habits, patterns of thought, of speech, and action that are characteristic of the new humanity. And that new humanity we put on, he continues to say, is is this new humanity is created after the likeness of God. Paul is, is certainly here talking about a humanity that's been created in the likeness of God, bringing us all the way back to page one of the Bible, the original intent of humanity. Humanity intended to be God's likeness and image, reflecting God's righteousness and holiness and goodness out into the world. Paul says when you get into this collective transformation cycle, you're actually regaining what was lost on page two, page three. 
So this is, this is collective transformation. I think there's one more, uh, Kyle, where this, I make the circle become a big circle. Yeah, because we never get out of this. <laughs> we continue in this process as a church. Now, this process gets complete in the new creation. When we truly are the new humanity, but that we don't sit around and wait. That begins now, Paul says. It's a work that we enter into together where we replace the old walk's trajectory with a new trajectory that moves towards new creation, that moves towards being truly, fully new humanity. Now, here's the thing. This is nowhere as easy as the Ten Commandments. Or maybe we'll even just go bigger, the 613, you know, laws of the Old Testament. Why? This, I can't just, like, put this up on my refrigerator and, like, okay, don't do this every single day. What does this require? It requires me paying attention and being discerning. It requires community. It requires varying different practices and habits depending on the context in which I find myself. This is so much more challenging than just like, you know, 10 commandments of how to, you know, how to survive Los Angeles. It's this invitation to this spirit-guided, scripture-sourced, communally experienced, and very, very messy walk. And Paul says, this is, this is it. I know for me, my, this invitation this past week, I was just mad at Paul. I get mad with Paul a lot sometimes. Is, is realizing, man, I wish Paul would have given me like the, the, the very easy rubric of like how to do this thing. This is really messy. And I, I really want the simple thing. Because here, here's the thing. Most of my life has been, this is, you know, I've avoided most stupid mistakes by just listening to podcasts and reading books. So it's like, okay, how to be a pastor? I'm going to read all the books that I can find on being a good pastor. How to preach? I'm going to read all the books. How to be a husband? How to be a dad? How to be a friend? Like, I just read, the, there's, you know, there's resources out there. Eat the resources, you know, figure it out and apply. Easy, right? Paul doesn't give me this. I want like, okay, here's how you, you know. Even more than that, on the other side of 2020, nobody knows how to be anything right now. I can't order a coffee. Like, I, like, like hi, welcome. Just like, I, I just like leave. Like, I don't need it. Even more than that, not just to be, like, to be a human, but to be the church or, or, or to be a, a roommate or to be a, an employee or, or uh, I mean, fill in whatever realms you find yourself in. I, the reality is, is that there's no books, there's no podcasts, there's no resources out there on how to be a Christian right now, how to be a church right now, how to be human right now. And anybody who acts like they know is selling you something. Nobody, nobody. I, there's pastors that are like, you know, we're, we, we know how to get out of this, follow us. Like, you know, for, you know, $3,000, you can come with us and we're going to show you how to rebuild your church on the other side of this. And I'm like, y'all, <laughs> I know you're not sleeping. <laughs> I know you're a, a bundle of anxiety because everybody is. There's nobody's got this thing figured out. The only thing, and this is why I'm so grateful, Paul didn't just give the Ephesian church the perfect rule of how to do it in Ephesus. He gave them something that then can be copied and pasted in any context, in any generation, and it has been over the past 2,000 years. And the invitation for some of us who are a little more podcast, you know, we want those resources, is actually to enter into a deeper, messier, more mysterious communal experience of what it means to be the people of God. And I don't like it one bit. So here's, here's what Paul does. I love this. In verses 25 through 32, Paul takes that collective transformation paradigm, he takes it out for a test drive. He takes it out for a spin. He gives us five test cases and how this plays out in the city of Ephesus, not to be an exhaustive answer, but kind of like the first few answers on your homework so that then you can go do the rest. 
And all of them, not surprisingly at all, back to Pastor Lorenzo last week, is about unity and maturity. So look with me. Um, Kyle, you can throw up the first one. So in verse 25, Paul talks about putting away falsehood. He identifies falsehood, not speaking the whole truth, the full truth, and nothing but the truth, right? The ways that we mix and mingle truth and little white lies, and we don't give the full example of what He identifies that. And then he goes into, okay, imagination. What does our spirit-led imagination bring us to? What is the story of the gospel and our new humanity reality? What does that bring at the center of our attentions as we imagine that? Oh, that we are members of one another, he says in verse 25. So if falsehood is a common pattern within the old humanity to put off, but we're actually members of one another, then what does that bring me into in implementing practices and habits, rhythms of telling the truth? of speaking the truth about ourselves to others and about speaking the truth about others from our perspective and working through this. So this is, and then Paul, this is it. So look out at your city. What do you see? Oh, falsehood is common. People not telling the full truth, telling little half-truths, right, or, or, or outright lying. Paul goes, oh, the new humanity, when we imagine the fact that I'm members of one another, specifically for us in the church community, oh, we lean heavily into vulnerability and honesty. Now, here's the thing that I, I was walking home thinking about this section, and I, I had to sit down on the curb and start, like, typing out. All, this is, so I, just bear with me for a second as I, as I freak out about how crazy this is. Each of these that Paul gives, whenever we enter into the collective transformation process, brings about what we could call a new humanity reversal. This is so cool. Okay, watch what Paul's doing here. What is the root of falsehood? Why do we lie? Why do we not tell the whole truth? Most regularly, out of a desire to be respected, to be loved, to be uh, accepted, for there to be peace within the community or within our relationships with others. So we withhold the full truth about ourselves, or we don't tell the full truth about someone else and what they've done to us. Oh, it's fine to keep the peace, right? And so what this is, is a good desire for peace and love and acceptance and respect that, going back to verse 22, has been deceived about how to get it. And so we believe in order to be respected, to be honored, to be accepted, the only way to do that is by me never telling the full truth. Because if that happens, I won't be accepted, I won't be loved. In the new humanity flip, we actually find that telling the truth and being vulnerable is how we actually truly experience acceptance and love and respect. And then as we become a community where that happens, where we find that actually radical truth-telling about our stories to one another and about what others have done to us that maybe have hurt us in the past, when we become that sort of a community, that sort of a community then is a shining light to a city that's caught up and the only way to be loved is the lie. Paul has this new humanity reversal that happens, that more than the collective transformation, just being about you being a good person, it's about showing to the world what it means to be new humanity. Let's keep going. We'll try to go a little bit faster through these next ones. Uh, the next one, Paul says in verse 26 and 27, he identifies the old humanity, this way of anger that leads to sin or anger that leads to sin being something that brings division within relationships. So someone does something against me, I result in anger. And that anger most often comes out in me adding more division into the relationship, right? This is most of us, our relationship with our spouse or our roommates, right? You step on my toes, and then, it, you know, you do something, and now it's just like I'm like harboring bitterness, right? And then it just blows up into to something that doesn't fix the relationship. It just makes it worse. 
Paul identifies a pattern of anger that leads to sin and division out in the old humanity, both in ourselves and in our city. And his imagination thing that he clicks over here, the story of scripture and the story of what it means to be the people of God, is that there's a devil who's looking for a foothold. There are powers at work within this world that are literally hell-bent on dividing humanity, specifically looking for a foothold in these little church communities of the new humanity where they can rupture the unity and maturity that they have. And so when we have that paradigm as the big thing before us, the major big one enemy for us is that there's, there's an enemy who's looking for a foothold within our communities, then what does that lead to? Is us implementing, not that we never get angry. I love that Paul allows for us to get angry. This is not like an Eastern meditate, like, you know, where we, we purge ourselves of all desire and all feeling and emotion. Paul says, be angry, but do something constructive with that anger. Don't allow that anger to lead you to sin and more division, but allow that anger, when you are sinned against, to push you towards speedy reconciliation, not letting the sun go down on it, not letting it lay and grow bitter and ultimately lead to worse things. Similarly, the reversal here. What is the root of anger? A desire for justice when we or something else has been wronged. When that gets deceived is we take it into our own hands. The new humanity finds that True justice, that good desire that was deceived, true justice is actually found through moving into repentance, reconciliation, transformation for the offending party. You see that Paul's got a whole paradigm he's working through here. Let's keep moving through these. Next in 28, Paul identifies in the old humanity, stealing or theft, that motivating way of that walk of perceiving reality in, in terms of what we can take, what I can take. Paul actually um, then goes, okay, so if we imagine, he actually doesn't give one in this one, I think most likely because he thinks he has in the, the previous two about us being members of one another. So if I think largely in what I can take, but I see myself as being members of one another, then what does that motivate me to start doing? Implementing, not just me stealing, but me having a job, me getting work so that I can not be generous to others. So we move from what we can take to what we can give. You see the paradigm of just what Paul's inviting us into here. Now notice, this was what Paul does here. New humanity isn't just that you stop stealing. That we take a more moral way of getting and accruing stuff or wealth for ourselves. What's the end goal of the transformation of new humanity? It's generosity. New humanity is not about just not stealing, but me working my job so that I can accrue the stuff that I want. For Paul, that's not the end goal. That may be a little bit better, but that's not new humanity. New humanity is working so I can be generous. One more time. Old humanity is stealing. Paul doesn't say don't steal. He says the way of new humanity is working faithfully at my job so I can give to those who are in need. Do I need to go again? Los Angeles, West Side. The calling of Jesus is not working so you can accrue stuff. Working so you can give to those who are in need. Let's keep going. Or actually, we won't. Let's stop here, actually. Because at the end of the day, the reversal, what is the root of stealing? You know, back with the old humanity that way. Is ultimately my desires or my needs are not met. And so in the new humanity, we find that our greatest wants 
now move off of the silly little things of this world and move to actually caring for other image bearers becomes our primary desire. And similarly, that as you get a community that starts doing this, this not only does something within the Christians in the community, it becomes the sort of place where in this sort of a neighborhood, even those outside of the church have less temptation to steal now because their needs are being met. You see Paul's turning over cities here. Similarly, most of us aren't thieves in here. I mean, some of y'all, I, don't, I mean, I, I don't know. Maybe you guys do steal. But what we can think about is this spectrum and range of what Paul's setting out before us here is there are many of us that are still, not even here, but just old humanity. We'll talk about outside the building. If, this, if you feel like this is on you, this is not, this is just, I'm talking about our city. There are for many that operate within that same paradigm of what we can take. And we perceive this within our relationship to the city that we find ourselves within. People move to the city of Los Angeles. They get in a couple, maybe a year or two, get in the work that they can, get the job, the title, right? And then like, a, like literally a thief in the night, they're gone. This is like my neighborhood as much as it is yours. We come in, they get the job at such and such a place in Los Angeles, put in a couple of years there, and then they, they take what they can from Los Angeles and then they leave. What would new humanity look like in a city like Los Angeles? Similarly, even outside of old humanity, but when old humanity begins to come into the church, there are many of us that that stealing, that theft, that consumerism, that what we can take brings ourselves into sitting in this room. We come in, we think of our relationship to the church largely in terms of what we can take. And then the sermon is done, communion is, is received, and then like a thief in the night. Paul says, I want you to move from that old humanity way of thinking primarily in terms of what can I take and receive to in my relationships with not just economically, but my city and my church, what can I give? This is what new humanity looks like. He continues in verse 29 through 30 where he identifies corrupting talk, the, the sort of language that tears down others. And he asks us to imagine to see each other in light of the gospel that you and I both are sealed by the Holy Spirit for the day of redemption. God, have mercy on me if I were to grieve the Holy Spirit who's building you up. And so with that sort of imagination in mind, now we give ourselves to habits and practices and ways of encouraging speak, of talking in a way that builds one another's up. The reversal here being the root of corrupting talk is always that deceived desire to build ourselves up. And the deception that we have is the way to build ourselves up is by tearing others down. In the new humanity, we find that we ourselves are built up as we build up others. I mean, you just, yeah, you just think about in many of y'all's workplace of how this operates. The ambition, climbing the corporate ladder, how do I just pull so-and-so down just a couple of rungs so I can slip my hand in there? Paul says there's a different way for new humanity. And then the last one that he gives in verse 31 through 32 is he identifies this whole list of things that he gives. Bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, along with malice, jokingly. That, that literally sounds like Twitter to me. But, but what it is is these patterns of being destructive towards one another. Malice, this overabundance of, of, of anger, this bitterness, this seething resentment towards someone. Clamor is, you know, more of that language of just kind of that, that violent talk, pulling others down. 
And Paul says to put those things off and to implement kindness and forgiveness and tenderness based out of that imagination, that renewed way of seeing that you and I have been forgiven by God in Christ. So when I begin to see myself, not just myself as being forgiven by God, but you, that radically changed. You, Johnny Langdon. <laughs> You're the first one I went for. You, Johnny, you know what you did. When I look at, when I look at, when I see you, and when I perceive you as being one who's been forgiven by God himself in Christ, that allows me then to now start motivating and moving towards you with forgiveness and tenderness and kindness. The reversal happening, we're just like anger. So often when we get in that space, that clamor, that wrath, that anger, that is our deceived desire for recompense and justice. That if I don't say this, I don't do this, then you're going to keep going on about this way. The new humanity sees that, yes, recompense is necessary when evil is done. But within this church community, we hold ourselves to the fact that it has been dealt with through the person and work of Jesus. I choose to view you even when you are at your worst through the lens of the cross. And I move towards you with tenderness and kindness and forgiveness. So here's these five examples that Paul's just given. Not exhaustive. Paul's trying to get your and I's, our imaginations rewired so that we can move forward into our lives, not just with these five, but like hundreds more. And so this is where, as you go into your community group or discipleship groups this week, as you move into your discipleship groups this week, as you begin to study and, and discuss this text, I would invite all of you to, to, to spend some time in this three-part three paradigm to together identify what are those patterns, habits, and ways of being, the walk of old humanity that I find represented not just within my city but within myself. To then together, you know, whether that's, you know, over coffee or however you're gathering this season, to then go, okay, so let's imagine together you bring up that this is this thing that you've identified within your life and you then allow the other guys in the group or gals in the group to then speak into what does that, what might that look like differently or what does the gospel speak to that issue, that thing that you're seeing. And then together for you to start talking through what new habits, what new practices are the things that are going to be implemented so that we might walk in the new humanity. And in doing so, to bring about some of these new humanity reversals within our city. Now, thinking about LA, like a moment ago, I just gave the, the getting versus the giving. Similarly, you could just go through this, identifying the way our city treats and, and sees or, or doesn't see uh, the homeless and the mentally ill within our city. You could talk about consumerism. You could talk about selfish ambition, digital distraction, the pace of our city, the isolation of our city, the individualism of our city, the hierarchies of social worth within our city, hello, the political factionalism, the racism like Paul himself did in chapter two, or sex and money like Paul's gonna do next week. Happy Father's Day. <laughs> to begin to identify what are those things, those characteristics of the old humanity within our city to begin in community together to imagine what it might be and then to find and implement habits and practices and rhythms and ways of being where the new humanity actually moves out into our city. And then you do these together. 
You keep each other, you hold each other, you talk through them. You find ones that you agree, maybe do them together. We're all going to do this this week, or, or you're going to focus on that. We're gonna, we'll talk to you about that next week. I'm going to focus on that. Hold me to that. In many ways, this is what our discipleship group should be doing each week, even if not perfectly within this format. Identifying the old humanity within ourselves, imagining what the gospel speaks into it, and then implementing new ways of being as a result. This is the pattern and process of collective transformation. It's not as easy as the Ten Commandments. It's the way of love, he says in 5 verse 1. As we enter into collective transformation of putting off the old humanity, as we close, for Paul, putting off the old humanity and putting on the new, this is how we become imitators of God, Paul says. What a task to imitate God within our city. When we embody this new humanity, moving through that process of, of identifying, imagining, and implementing, we embody the likeness and the image of God. We imitate God. We regain that original purpose for what humans were made for. As he says in verse 2, we walk in love. See, to walk and live in a manner worthy of our new humanity calling is to no longer walk like the old humanity, to walk like the new humanity, which is the way of love. This is the task that Paul sets before us as a community. But as we close, what's worth noting here is this whole calling that Paul's given to us today of collective transformation, all of this, every single piece, is not about becoming something that we're not. It is not about becoming something that we're not, but finally becoming who we actually are. You see, we imitate God not to be his children or to earn his, his love. But as he says in 5 verse 1, be imitators of God as his beloved children. We follow this way not to earn something or to get find ourselves adopted or brought in, but as us walking and carrying out what we found to be true about ourselves already. You see, we walk in the way of love in verse 2, not to reach a place of lovableness, but because we already have been loved by God in Jesus Christ. That his love for us, shown as Paul details through the death of Jesus on the cross, where he gave himself up for us while we were still stuck in that walk of the world, the old walk, his sacrificial death has brought us up from that walk into death. That his light has brought us out of darkness, his closeness out of our alienation, purpose in the midst of our futility. That we've been united in him, moving from our old humanity into the new. And so our collective transformation, this task and calling, is not about how we become something that we're not. But it starts and begins with the fact that this is who we already are. And transformation is simply us becoming more fully who we actually are. Not just as an individual. We. Who we more fully as a community are. This is what the cask is invited to us. So let's pray as we move into a time of response.